Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mitzi Epstein is a Democratic leader in the state Senate, a position she's held since March. And although this is her first Senate term, Epstein is no stranger to the Arizona legislature. She served three terms in the House of Representatives. She represents a district that increasingly has trended Democratic, covering Ahwatukee, much of Southern Tempe, and parts of Chandler. In the 30-member Senate, Epstein leads a caucus of 14 Democrats. She's focused on budget and financial issues, including education. In the 2024 session, she and her fellow Democrats will try to demonstrate why voters should elect more Democrats as they attempt to flip the legislature from red to blue. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we dissect our state's political news to help you understand what your lawmakers are up to. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover the state legislature and policy. Today, we're joined by Senator Mitzi Epstein to talk about the past year at the legislature and what lies ahead in 2024. Senator Epstein, welcome to The Gaggle. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I'm a fan. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, You know your background, when you came to the Valley, or are you a Valley native? I'm uh, Mitzi Epstein, state senator of the fabulous District 12, which is Ahwatukee, Chandler, and Tempe, and a single precinct of the Grick. Oh, well. (laughs) Very happy to have that now in our district. And I'm a computer systems analyst by profession. I've worked for very large corporations, Olin Manufacturing, Citicorp Finance, and I've run a small company. So I went from languages that are computers speaking them to spoken languages because I love to say communicating gets things done. So That's my trajectory of profession, and I've always found that my business background has been really useful to help with understanding bills and economic development at the legislature and that sort of thing, but I'm always quick to tell folks, whatever profession, whatever job you have, that's also really great to have at the legislature. So I find mine applies. I'm analytical by nature and by profession. I bring that. Everybody in what they bring to the legislature is what helps it all work together. So you referenced your professional background and attracting different sorts of walks of life to the ledge, but talk to us a bit about your thinking and and how you were drawn first to getting to the legislature. You obviously had other things you could be doing. Why do this? Education. My kids, all our kids, I've always had a great sense of all our kids. And when my own children were in school, I first found, oh, what kind of reading help is there for them? And I was told, you know, there's a thing called a literacy coach. We can't afford them, but gosh, it'd be nice. We just don't have it. And then I thought, you know, learning world languages would be great. Oh, we don't have the budget for that. So time after time, I was told we don't have the budget for that. And so I 
wanted to learn more about that, became active with our school district, superintendent council. I found and co-founded Apple, the Arizona Parents for Public Education, which was a coffee clutch that met downtown from school districts across the state, north, south, east, west. And we advocated for public schools and to create a great education for every child as parents. In the days of parents being terribly respectful, (laughs) then I went on to mentor and coach other parents to literally be respectful, but learn the chain of command and how decisions are made and encourage parents to have polite, courteous, thoughtful conversations with your child's teacher, with your child's principal, with eventually your school board members, because everybody is trying to do the same thing, do the best for kids. So I wanted to help children better, and I kept finding it's the budget, it's the budget, it's the budget. So I ran on the slogan of we need to restore education funding. I won first in 2016 to get to the legislature, and now we're facing, once again, potentially a $300 million. We're not going to let it be cut to education, K-12 education, but we're going to have to do some fancy footwork to figure out how to fill that in. You referenced um, the demeanor and the language that surrounds a lot of the conversations about education. What's changed and why do you think that has happened? Well, certainly it's a new thing to have parents from other districts go to school board meetings and say things in very unkind ways and impolite ways, to put it nicely. So that's new and distressing because I've always advocated for parents to speak up and be heard, but in a collaborative, constructive way, not in a shake-your-finger-at-people-and-get-mad-at-them way. And literally have seen parents showing up to school board meetings and shaking their fingers at these volunteers who are school board members. They are volunteers, and they put in a lot of time to do the homework before a meeting. They contribute during meetings. They meet with school officials all week long. It's a big job, and, you know, everybody does their job better when we treat each other with respect. Given that, and as you mentioned, you ran for the legislature because of education and the budget, what kept you coming back? I mean, you're in your, I think, fourth term, if you would. You're absolutely right. Education was the main motivator. A number of things have kept me there. Certainly, it's been really interesting to learn about a lot of different topics, and I didn't expect to become the tax authority or tax whiz at the legislature, but that is what has turned into. I've been the ranking member on the Ways and Means Committee in the House, and now in the Senate, I'm the ranking member on the Finance Committee, in addition to being the Senate Minority Leader. I have a math and computer science background, and therefore procedures and processes are all fascinating to me, and a lot of tax law and tax policy is procedures. So it's an area that I like to do work in. And I have a passion for it because our tax laws are so regressive in Arizona. As you may have heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it for your benefit. In Arizona, we are a high-tax state for low-income people. So you'll hear many people say, oh, we're a low-tax state. And if you are wealthy, that is true. If you are not wealthy, it is not true. So for instance, if you break the tax income into five brackets... The lowest two might be paying 10, 11, 12, 13% of their income in state and local taxes. Meanwhile, those at the very top might be paying under 5% of their income in state and local taxes. That's way too big of a gap. And that math was done even before we did this single tax rate, which made it even more regressive because, as you know, all the benefits really mostly went to those in the very top tax brackets. So 
our state tax structure is much more than just our income tax, much more than just our sales tax. You have to look at all the ways we tax people and understand that they want to use the money in their pockets and that it should be fair. And right now it's not fair. I want to shift gears more fully to the partisan edge of governance and such. One of the big changes that we've seen in Arizona in the last year is the election of a Democratic governor. It's been a while since Democrats had that lever of power. It's certainly a change, I'm sure, for those in the legislature working with Governor Katie Hobbs, as opposed to the Republican governor, Doug Ducey, before he left office. Talk about what those differences have meant for you. Substantively, in terms of the policy spectrum of ideas, it could be discussed at least, and how much of it is meaningful in a legislature that remains under Republican control. It's been fantastic. You know, for one thing, there was the budget, which we're very happy to have done historical investments in housing, helping the homeless and providing for affordable housing, a bridge for those who might to keep them from being evicted. Eviction prevention is very important. You need a home in order to keep your job and everything else. So we're very happy with our work on how affordable housing. And I don't think that could have been done with a Republican governor. And our investments in K-12, as the Senate Minority Leader, when the budget was being developed, I rallied for we have to keep at least our K-12 schools even for inflation. And we did manage to do that, but we used one-time funding instead of ongoing funding to do it. So that's going to be a world of hurt. So some good things have happened because, in my view, for the people of Arizona, because of having a Democratic governor. And interesting things happened, though, too. <laughs> So Speaker Toma and Senate President Peterson have sent bills up to the governor that I feel like they're in a race with each other about who can be the worst bad bill king. They are just sending up things that they would have never sent to a Republican governor because they are not workable or far too extreme or we already have a law for that. The several of the bills that they sent up to her were simply redundant. Somebody wanted to say, make her say, veto this, when in fact, we already have three other laws that cover that. Can you give some examples of what you consider are these bad bills the, that died quickly? You know, I should have brought them with me. I really should have them in my toolbox. <laughs> I don't have them. I could probably follow up with you with, with some. But I know that some of them that were redundant came through Jude, the Judiciary Committee. And so it was a typical redundancy would have been to say it's illegal to do something that is a very bad thing and make her veto it when, in fact, we already have a law that says it's already a crime to do that. So, for instance, some of the drag show bills were like that. Drag performers are not doing anything criminal and should not be criminalized. But a Republican partners tried to portray them as though they were doing something illicit and that's not the case. We have a lot of laws that prevent illicit performances in front of children. Those laws are in place. We didn't need laws that were intended to shame people. You referenced the budget, and we know that the current state budget is bipartisan. That was touted very widely. Um, everybody seemed generally happy with that. But I know you had some pretty strong opinions about how that budget came together because it gave Democratic lawmakers very limited choices after the governor had signed off onto a deal with the GOP leaders. You've talked about some of the wins, like housing, et cetera. What were some things in the budget that you felt the state fell short on? Two things jumping to mind. One is spending $10 million to advertise that 
students should leave their public school or whatever they're doing and go get a universal ESA voucher is not money well spent. Compare this. I have constituents who come to me every year and say, my child had a moment of suicidal ideation. We've been looking for a counselor. We finally found somebody. It was very difficult. And now we're fighting with our insurance company, and it breaks your heart. You know what? Those parents have the right to go to the Department of Insurance, and the Department of Insurance should help them in fighting and working with their insurance company. The Department of Insurance should have their backs. Have you ever heard an ad advertising, Arizonans, if you need help working with your insurance company, call the Department of Insurance. We don't hear ads for that. But there's room to make profits on sending children out to education businesses via the universal ESA voucher program. So we're advertising that. It's just the wrong kind of focus that we need. We should be investing in education that helps all of our students and not promoting spend money at private businesses using taxpayer dollars, which is $10 million got into the budget for that. You've referenced your familiarity with financial issues, budget matters more broadly. We've heard a lot about the spending pressures that we expect to see on the education side. Tax revenues are always uh, sort of a fluid number, it seems, more fluid than it ought to be. What are you expecting for this upcoming legislative session as it relates to the budget and the state's overall financial health? Do you think that the state is going to be fighting over manageable cuts? Are we going to be able to grow, do anything worth talking about that expands into program areas? Like you just said, we're trying to remind people of what the Department of Insurance does. How do you expect next year to play out? The JLBC, which is the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, has told us that we have a $400 million deficit in this year's budget. So first thing when we go back, we have to find $400 million to pay for the budget we did last year. Then we have $450 million hole in the budget ongoing year after year. So we need to find not just $450 million, but an ongoing amount for that. Additionally, the JLBC's numbers may or may not include increased caseloads that perhaps they're unpredictable, but back the napkin math says we might have an even higher deficit as we pay for the things that have to be paid for because of increased caseloads. So I'm not expecting it to be anywhere near the kind of budget we had last year, we will have to find money to just keep government going. And that is going to be difficult. And it is the result of, in my opinion, <laughs> my Republican colleagues budgeting with their eyes closed. They have year after year made big cuts to revenue at the same time as they expanded spending. The expansion of ESA universal vouchers meant we went from we only pay for public schools to pay, we pay for private and homeschooling in addition so it was a huge expansion of spending that had no plan for revenue. And that kind of budgeting with your eyes closed that my Republican colleagues have done is what led us to where we are today. So it's going to be a difficult budget year for sure. Do you think they really budgeted with their eyes closed? You know, or perhaps you know, this is an effort to downsize government? Well, I feel like, yeah, I, they must be budgeting with their eyes closed because they expect to remain in the majority and so they're going to hand themselves a budget that is not balanced, and then they have to make the cuts. So you're right. I sat on a panel with Senate President Warden Peterson, and he said he's looking forward to making cuts. 
which I think is atrocious because that's telling the room full of people he's going to cut their salary because the state budget affects the salaries of teachers, state employees, the people who go out and fix the guardrail after an accident on the highway in the middle of the night, security, our DPS, people who are there for us, and he's going to cut their salaries. And he's giddy about it. So yeah, I think they are trying to just make cuts, and they're not recognizing that those cuts affect people's dinner table. They affect the dinner table to the extent of we have cut childcare so much that people are struggling just to keep their jobs and pay for childcare. And when in fact, the state should be helping very young families to pay for childcare, because that's a workforce development tool that really works. Democrats are hoping that next year they can flip at least one of the chambers in the legislature. They're close in both chambers at this point. What are the issues that you think that your party needs to run on to try and gain control in one or both chambers? And what would be the most urgent priority in a Democratic majority at the legislature on the other side? We have set our three biggest priorities are housing, schools, and water. And water is, of course, very important. There are taps that are running dry in parts of Arizona. We cannot just continue same old, same old. We have some good leadership from the governor's office on water in that she has put together a water task force with a subcommittee on one is for rural areas, the other is for cities, assured water versus groundwater rules. And they are working on some very feasible solutions for the short term and trying to set the groundwork for a long-term solution that will actually help the people of Arizona feel secure about our water. You know, we pick up the newspaper or we pick up our phones and we look at the news and the headlines and we see that story after story explaining how we just have less water. Our water laws were worked out well when we had only a million people in the whole state. You could say, if you can reach it, you can pump it out on groundwater. Well, now, if whoever can build the deepest well, if they pump all the water out, they're essentially taking the water from all their neighbors. So we really need some different laws, something that's more fair and something that looks at the fact that people need wet water. So water is a big deal for us. Housing is important. We learned a lot last session. I've heard folks say that we didn't get anything done on housing last session, but that is just not true. First of all, we learned so much. We came into the session with you know, many folks had not ever considered or thought about zoning, had not considered or thought about financing construction. A lot was learned. And we learned that some of the big barriers are not just zoning, but also workforce and financing and just materials. So all of that was a big learning step. And then a really wonderful thing started to happen during the interim, and that was cities had been paying attention to our debate and started to make some changes, started to make some changes that will open up more for more housing within the cities and to learn from each other about what each city is doing on making housing more affordable. So we are making strides and we're going to continue to do that because you should be able to have a home if you're a working teacher or if you're a working person in, in public safety, anything else. Our workforce needs affordable housing. So I, I want to just hover over that for a moment if we can. On water, you talked about things like task forces or feasible solutions for the near term and such. That sounds fairly painless. Is it? What should people tangibly expect any solution on such a scarce resource as water in the desert 
to actually look like? Should we be expecting cutbacks? Should we be expecting wholesale changes as to who has access to it in certain business categories, for example? What does the solution start to look like? Well, one of the solutions that's being put forward, as I understand it, is rental buildings. So you've heard about if you build a subdivision of homes, the builder has to supply 100 years of water if you're in an active management area. But if you build that same number of homes and you plan to rent them, you don't have to assure the water supply. Well, that's a good solution for people who are going to take a one-year lease. It's not a really good solution for the person who's building the homes, and it's not a good solution for the state of Arizona and planning our water supply. So we're looking into closing that loophole to say that, you know, if you're going to build a subdivision full of homes and you're going to planning to rent them, which is becoming a more popular thing, you have to provide an assured water supply. You mentioned that education is one of the three priorities of the Democratic caucus. Just recently, GOP leaders unveiled this plan, details to come, but that would allow for a $4,000 pay raise for teachers um, with money coming from the state land trust. If they get this on the ballot, how are Democrats going to respond to that? And, and can you get out a message that is favorable to Democrats if you effectively look like you're campaigning against a pay raise for teachers? <laughs> you know, Democrats are grounded in reality. We are not chasing every conspiracy theory that ever comes along our Twitter feed. We're grounded in reality, and we're planning for education based on what is real and practical and what works. So this plan that they have at the press conference, my Republican colleagues said, we're still working on it. We don't know what exactly it's going to be. And when we have pressed them for details, they have not published any details yet. So it is really a cotton candy poof in the air, much more than it is a solid plan. Democrats have been advocating for better teacher pay forever. And we have been working for solid plans. And this is not that. This is cotton candy. You know what happens with cotton candy. When you actually touch it, it turns into a real big mess right away. And this is a cotton candy plan that they are putting together. Until I see details where it's going to work, that's all it is. Now, having said that, we've been looking at Prop 123 for some time as well. And we're still trying to figure out how much room is there in the fund, the State Land Trust Fund, and what's the best way to look at it, to go forward. Whereas in the past, the Republican Prop 123 was sort of pick some percentages out of the sky and we'll take that much out of the land trust fund. I'd like to take a better approach that says still protect the principle so that we are not stealing from the future. If we don't protect the principle, we're giving to today's students what belongs to tomorrow's students. We don't want to do that. So I would take a more analytical approach to this financial product and not just toss cat and candy up in the air and say, look, isn't that fun and delicious? Because it's not. <laughs> Can you um, handicap the upcoming races for us as pertains to the legislature? I mean, where do you see the Democrats more likely to make gains, more so in the House? Setting aside the bias you might have for the Senate, is the Senate more likely to be a pickup? I definitely have a bias for the Senate. Our Senate has a really good chance to become a Democratic majority. And we have a G 
Representative Judy Schwiebert, who is running for the Senate, who is a superstar on the Appropriate Committee, a superstar on the Education Committee. She speaks up for children and speaks up for our future eloquently. Her district loves her. I've seen it. I've been out there talking to folks. That's a potential for a great big win. You're in the middle of a lot of policy work now as we get ready for the 2024 session. Are there other things that you want to highlight that we might be looking forward to? Sure. So if you like outrageous TV, if you like television where people get up and throw chairs and it becomes more and more outrageous day after day, tune in to next season of the Raucous Freedom Caucus because last season was the pilot episode of the Raucous Freedom Caucus and we expect more coming up this next session. But we shouldn't. You know, the things that they have done are, this is not governing. This is some kind of a reality TV show or something. And I go home crying sometimes because it shouldn't be happening. For instance, what they did to the School for the Deaf and Blind was ridiculous. The House passed the bill that said, continue the Arizona School for the Deaf and Blind. And when it came to the Senate, the Freedom Caucus said, no, we don't want to. We don't like them for some reason. And we could not figure out what their reason was for not continuing the school for the deaf and blind. That was a circus that we did not need to have, and I don't understand it. Um, the other thing was uh, the Senate president decided to just cancel the Commerce Committee with a tweet instead of doing appropriate policy. Like, for instance, did he check in with the Chambers of Commerce? <laughs> did he check in with our ranking member of the Commerce Committee? He did not, and he made a tweet, which had to be followed up with a fix, a catch for himself. We said, oh, really, we're just going to make it now be the Finance and Commerce Committee. So I'm looking forward to serving on the Finance and Commerce Committee as we go forward. Well, Leader Epstein, thank you for previewing coming attractions <laughs> to a state house near us. And thank you for sharing your time and thoughts on this matter. If people want to follow your work and your views online or in social media, where can they find you? I'm at uh, MitziEpstein.com. And also you can find us at azleg.gov, where you'll find everything you ever wanted to know about what the legislature is doing, everything you wanted to know, and that the Majority Caucus will let you see. <laughs> well, thank you again for your time. Great. Thank you. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about today's episode or topics you'd like us to cover on the show? Send us a message at 602-444-0804 or a voice memo to the gaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's all one word, all spelled out. This episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto with additional production help by Kaylee Monahan. Script writing and research by Mary Jo Pitzel and me. News direction for The Gaggle comes from Kathy Tulamello, and our music comes from Universal Production Music. Never miss an episode of The Gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen. If you learned something new today, be sure to share this episode with a friend. You can also leave us a review and rate us five stars. You can follow The Gaggle on social media at AZC Podcast. And you can follow me at Mary J. Pitzel, that's P-I-T- ZL. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H A N S E N. The Gaggle is an Arizona Republic and AZCentral.com production. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.